0: When I was a child, there was a time in which uh, trick birthday candles were all the rage. It was always somewhat interesting to watch someone's face as they tried and tried and tried again to blow out those candles, but to no avail. Some of us tried with all of our might. And no matter how hard we tried, the light that we had thought that we had snuffed out came back. It's been like that throughout history. As different leaders have tried to snuff out God's word. Whether it's Antiochus or Diocletian, whether it's philosophers or false religious systems or communist regimes, many have tried throughout history either to chain or to cut off the word of God. Some have tried to prohibit transmissions, others have tried to cut off translations, but they all have one thing in common they have all ultimately failed. And that long list of failure, you might say, in the New Testament church begins right here in Acts chapter 4. As we make our way into the text, first I want to briefly create some context. We have been studying Acts chapter 3. We just finished that. We're making our way into Acts chapter 4, but I want to remind you what happened in Acts 3. There was a man who had been crippled for over 40 years. He was lame from his mother's womb, and he was miraculously healed. You'll remember that a crowd ensued as a result of marveling at the miracle and that a massed audience provided an occasion for Peter's evangelistic preaching. Those who played a part, some role or another, when you look at Peter's speech, Peter's preaching, some who had some role or another in Jesus' crucifixion were actually given an opportunity to have that sin and all of their other sins blotted out, wiped away. They could have left in that time, if they would have heard the gospel and repented, they could have left being like those who would come to sing in later generations that hymn, My sins are blotted out, I know. And there would be many that day that would respond to the gospel by God's grace. But there would also be those who would add to their guilt. And I'm not simply referring to those who would hear Peter's message and then in an unwise and undiscerning way not respond to it with faith by God's grace. I'm talking about persons that we know. Familiar villains will reemerge on the scene in our study of Acts chapter 4, and they are going to try to snuff out what was to them a familiar name. We'll see all of that and more as we get into our text today. We begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, where we read, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. So in the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 4, you see it says, Now as they spoke to the people. Doubtless, this refers to Peter and John. You're going to see that the lame man was with them. He was with them on this day, and he's actually going to be with them when they appear before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, the next day. But right here, you get the idea that Peter and John, at least primarily, are the ones who are doing the preaching and teaching, because look at verse 2. They were teaching the people, and they were also preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now before we get to verse 2, just a little note uh, here, a couple of notes about these um, parties that were involved in coming upon Peter and John. If you look at verse 1, we have three groups mentioned. The first one is the priests. The priests. They were the ones who essentially functioned in different roles at the temple. They had different responsibilities in the service at the temple. They might burn incense, offer sacrifices, teach the people, do whatever tasks pertained to the sanctuary. Now, there were, uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, divisions of priests that were found. 24 divisions. And now, interestingly, it looks as though they would serve in kind of rotations. So it could have worked out in one of two ways, people usually say. It could have been that they served for two weeks... During the course of a the year, they would go to the temple and officiate at the temple. Because remember, these were priests and Levites. And remember, they were scattered throughout the land of Israel to teach the people the law and so on. But two weeks out of the year, they would come to the temple and they would serve at the temple. You also have the possibility that they would go to serve at the temple once um, every two years and they'd stay there for a month. So that's the first group here, the priests. They officiated in the temple. They offered sacrifices, burned incense, taught the law. Then you have the second group, or second person, the captain of the temple. Now, he was essentially the chief of security. And if you look through commentaries, you find over and over again, this role was a highly regarded one. It is repeatedly said that his position was second to the high priest. That's how prominent this role was. He served over... The temple guard. He was kind of over the Levitical police force, if you will. So he's there. And then you have the last group, a group that many of you doubtless are familiar with, the Sadducees. They were a religious group in Israel. um, Power brokers, if you will. They had a lot of political clout, and they also had a lot of religious clout within the nation of Israel. But I think they are best known for what they didn't believe. Remember, the Sadducees are those who did not believe in a resurrection. They are are those who did not believe in angels or demons. They did not believe in an afterlife. They only believed in the first five books of Moses, it is often said, as being divinely inspired. They had a lot of sad beliefs. And like my grandpa used to joke, that is why they are sad, you see. Because they had a lot of sad, erroneous beliefs they were also political opportunists. They were those who were in positions of power. It appears that they came to their power after the period of the Maccabees, that intertestamental period. They're like a a group of priestly families that get connected with the power brokers in the land and they try to solidify their power. That's why they tried to keep things nice and calm with Rome because they had a uh, a nice setup for them and they didn't want anybody rocking the boat. They're also said to have been a pretty um, cruel group. Uh, Josephus had noted, and I saw this in the pulpit commentary, that the Sadducees were more severe and cruel in their administration of justice than any other Jews. They went on to note, their tenet of no life to come made them look to severe punishments in this life. And doubtless, they would have looked for severe punishments right away for Peter and John. But you're going to see, in God's providence, God set it up in such a way in which they weren't going to be able to do what they wanted to do. The Lord willing, we'll see that in future studying. So that brings us to verse 2. They make haste, these three um, groups, uh, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, and the reasons for their haste are found in verse 2, where we read, being greatly disturbed. In other words, they were greatly annoyed. In the Greek here, this uh, verb annoyed or irritated or angered, and it's compounded by the preposition dia, So they were very upset, very disturbed. And we're told that they were disturbed because they, Peter and John, taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So this is why they were angry. Reason number one Peter and John are teaching, and they're like, who are these guys? Well, we didn't give them the green light to teach. We are in control. We are the Sadducees. They did not go through the rabbinical teaching system. Who was their rabbi? We don't know who these people are. So they were bothered that these people were teaching and they didn't have the the right to it as it were. The religious leadership of that day, they hated anything that infringed upon their authority. That's one of the reasons why they hated Jesus. He infringed upon their authority, and they thought he needed to be stopped. Well, Peter and John were doing so, and they thought they needed to be stopped as well. Second reason why they were upset is basically, I think this was multifaceted, because Peter and John were preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I think there's a lot of aspects to why this made them upset. First, they were a part of the Sanhedrin. Many note a primary part of the Sanhedrin, a majority part of the Jewish religious ruling council that wrongly sentenced Jesus to death and handed him over to Pilate. So a lot of these Sadducees were the very people who looked at the Son of God, the Messiah, and said, He deserves to die. And now Peter and John are preaching, No, 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 Jesus has risen from the dead. So they were upset. Dallas, they were also upset because they didn't believe in a resurrection. And now they're teaching people that Jesus has rose from the dead, and that's going to undercut their erroneous message. And if you undercut their erroneous message, you're going to undercut their clout. And they didn't want their clout to be undercut. Being right wasn't the priority as much as having power and wealth and influence. Being right was incidental. If they were right along the way, that was great. But protecting their power was the priority. Think about this. You see this even in Matthew 28. Remember after the soldiers come back and they are telling to the religious leadership what happened and they're saying that the tomb is empty and so on. and What does the religious leadership tell them? They create a lie for them. Matthew 28 verse 12. They give them money. They give them a large sum of money. Matthew 28 verse 12. They tell them the lie. Matthew 28 verse 13. And they assured them that if this ever got to Pilate that they would cover for them. Suffice it to say, the Sadducees in this case did not have righteous indignation. One other possibility as well, and maybe they're all together, these aren't mutually exclusive, is that they thought if word got around to the Romans that a Messiah was being preached who rose from the dead, the Romans could esteem this as being somewhat revolutionary. And what would be the problem with that? It could ruin the nice gig that the Sadducees had. So, maybe to one degree or another, all of these things are what bothered them in Peter and John preaching in Christ the resurrection. But you'll find in verse three, their indignation didn't just stay mental. They weren't just upset on the inside, it manifested itself physically. Look at verse three. And they laid hands on them. Please know this wasn't the good kind of laying on of hands. You know, they weren't praying for them, they weren't like ordaining them to ministry. They weren't doing any kind of a good laying on of hands or so on. This was a laying on of hands that was a seizing. Interestingly, the word that's used here in the Greek, epi balo. Now, the word balo means to cast, to throw. Epi, you think typically of being a preposition that means upon. It's like they threw their hands upon them. They seized them. So that's the picture that I think is meant to be painted here. They come down. They laid hands on them. Now, I just want to tell you something that I would do. If I was a filmmaker, and if I were recreating this scene in the kind of movie where we're trying to depict Acts chapter 4, what I would do is that the moment that Acts 4.3 happens, the beginning of it, and they laid hands on them, at that moment, I would all of a sudden insert a flashback to Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives, where he said, but before all of these things, they will lay hands on you. And persecute you. Delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my sake. Here is the initial fulfillment of those very words. And it would keep manifesting itself. But I want to remind you here that this was a prophecy that Jesus made. This was the initial fulfillment of it. And his word always comes to pass. You can believe it. You could believe the words of scripture, you could believe every word that Jesus said. He has a perfect streak that will never be broken. Some of you might remember my favorite pitcher when I was younger, Oral Hershiser. He pitched for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I believe he's a professing Christian, brother in Christ. And in 1998, he had an amazing year. The Dodgers go on to win the World Series. I believe he won the Cy Young Award that year. And that year, he pitched what I believe still is the record for number of innings pitched without giving up a run. 59 innings pitched without a run being given up. And if you were a baseball fan, if you were an Oral Hirschheiser fan, then you were watching those games saying, is the streak going to continue? Is it going to continue? And when it did, you were excited, but eventually you were disappointed. Because that streak, like other streaks in professional sports, don't go on forever. But with Jesus, you will never be disappointed. His perfect streak of having his words fulfilled will always stay. It will never be broken. And this is a witness to that right here in Acts chapter 4, verse 3. So they seized them and they put them in custody until the next day. So the Sanhedrin had a rule. They had a, a law that they essentially subscribed to that they would not um, try people at night before dawn. Didn't stop them when they wanted to kill Jesus, that rule. So they were okay with breaking their own rules. Probably they based this rule on Jeremiah twenty-one twelve and administered justice every morning. And it didn't stop them from persecuting Jesus and having their kangaroo courts happen during the night. But in this case, they were going to wait. They needed some sleep, perhaps, and they were going to wait until the next day. Peter and John are put in custody until then. And then we're told to get a little bit of a time marker here, for it was already evening. It was late, to use language from Matthew 14, 15. Notice, a little bit of context here. This event began at around 3 p.m., Because remember that uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple around the ninth hour. That was 3 p.m. Now that it's late, now that it's evening, you know that it's at least 6 p.m. So maybe the way in which they tried to put the kibosh, so to speak, on this whole thing was that they came and they're telling people, you got to leave. The evening sacrifice has been offered. Maybe they started to shut the gates. And as they're trying to disperse the crowd, because they know the crowd was pretty hyped up and excited about what happened, maybe as they're dispersing the crowd, saying you have to leave, in that moment while people are leaving, they grab Peter and John. So evening might have been helpful to them because it gave them a reason perhaps to dismiss the crowd so that the people wouldn't rally against them for what they saw Peter and John do and yet they're treating them like criminals and so on. It's a possibility. Now you have to love what Luke does at this point. Look at verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Luke is writing, he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it's as though he's telling his readers, I want you to notice something. They shut down the apostolic preaching that was happened. But the word of God prevailed nonetheless. They shut them down. They grabbed them. They put them in prison overnight. But what happened? However, many of those who heard the word believed. It's reminiscent to me of how the Apostle Paul said that he suffered as an evildoer, to the point of chains, but he said the word of God was not chained. He saw that even when he was imprisoned. He saw that the word of God could go to the palace guard. It could go to Caesar's household. You can't stop the word of God. More about that in a moment, but I want to say this. Rulers and authorities so often do not get this message. I want to give you an Old Testament example of this. Jehoiakim, Jeremiah chapter 36 Jehoiakim was the king who cut the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. He's one who you could say wrongly divided the word, literally. Took the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of God written, and he cut it up. If you look at the text in Jeremiah 36, it's like he's cutting it up piece by piece and throwing it into the fire. Did he stop the word of God? No, 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 not at all. As a matter of fact, he wanted to find Baruch the scribe and the prophet Jeremiah, but we're told in Jeremiah 36, the Lord hid them. So he wasn't finding them. And then God commanded Jeremiah, rewrite the scroll. And God even added something to it as well. So more revelation came. So they didn't stop the word of God. Jehoiakim is an example of those rulers and authorities who try to squash the word of God, but they can't stop his advancement, the Lord's advancement through his word. So I want to tell you, Please never confuse persecution with opposition prevailing. God's word will always prevail. Reformation Day is coming up. It's coming up this Tuesday. So will only remind you of a little bit of Reformation history. About 100 years before Martin Luther would come on the scene, there was a um, pre-reformer, if you will, a kind of forerunner to the Reformation, Jan Hus. And he was burned at the stake for the truths that he preached. And when he was burned at the stake, it is said that he said, you are going to burn a goose. Hus, his last name, meant goose. So this was kind of a play on words. He said, you are going to burn a goose. But in 100 years, you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. And in God's providence, in 100 years, 102 specifically would be Reformation Day when Martin Luther posts the 95 Thesis on the church doors of Wittenberg. Luther would come, and interestingly enough, John Fox, Fox would note this in his, um, in his historical record that the family coat of arms for Luther was interestingly, um, interestingly displayed a swan. I think it's just a great reminder to us. You can't arrest enough Christians to arrest Christianity. You can't kill enough Christians to kill the gospel. You could imprison apostles. You can kill disciples. But the word of God will continue to run its course swiftly wherever God wants it to go. Two other things to note in this text. This is amazing text. So much in here. Look at Acts chapter 4, look at verse 4. We're told many of those who heard the word believed. Here's another reformational truth that's being pointed to, I think, here implicitly. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. Peter had told the people to repent and their sins would be blotted out. And then Luke is saying right here, many believed. That's why I want you to understand that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They believed the gospel and their sins were blotted out. What did they believe? Many of those who heard the word believed. That's how people come to believe, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by what? The word of God. Second, I want you to notice this too. I think we have an implicit witness here to the ongoing connection that they had with the local church. Because we're told, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. That says, this is my opinion, I think that overtly suggests that they got connected. How do you know that? They were accounted for. So they didn't just believe and then just, you know, vanish into nowhere. They believed, doubtless they were baptized, doubtless they were connected to the church. They began to serve, support the ministry, proclaim Christ, and so on. I think this is an implicit witness to that. And I want to say, I think it's so important, true faith follows if you were trying to determine whether someone's faith is genuine, even your own, right? And if you wanted to hold up your faith to the light, so to speak, to try to discern whether or not it's genuine or not, if it is genuine, as you examine it, it will have obedience. You're not saved by obedience, but true faith follows. True faith has obedience. You could read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 to see an explicit textual witness to that. If you're looking at at it under the light and you don't see obedience, but you see a lot of disobedience, unrepentant disobedience, and so on, then you have to question the sincerity of that faith. True faith follows. One other thing I want you to note here is that the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now, I think what's going on here is that this is a kind of aggregate number. Remember, there were 120 people in the upper room waiting for the day of Pentecost. Then, on the day of Pentecost, how many souls believed? 3,000. So you have, on the day of Pentecost, 3,120 believers within the local church, about. Then we're told at the end of Acts chapter 2 that the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. Now, as you get here in Acts chapter 4, it's as though the number of males... Because the word that's used here is males. It's not like the word souls that was used next to, it's males. And oftentimes it's referring just to men. Uh, could refer to you know, anybody in a generic way sometimes. But I think what you have here is that the total number of males came to about 5,000, which means it's not even including believing women and believing children and young people. It's amazing. So how many Christians were in the church at this time? It's early, it's not long after Pentecost and you might have somewhere up to maybe even more than 15,000 believers. Talk about an awakening that's happening in Jerusalem at this time. Well, there we go. That was Paul's important, um, or Peter's, uh, Luke's important parenthetical note, if you will. Back to the narrative in verses five and six. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Okay, my cinematic mind here would want to depict the scene of these guys walking in, taking their seats in the Sanhedrin, this semicircle. I've heard also that it was an elevated semicircle, so you can imagine them taking their seats in this kind of court of judgment. They're walking into the room. I imagine the Darth Vader music. That's just me. Imagining something like that, this foreboding kind of music, because you have enemies of the gospel who oversaw the criminal trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here they are. Names that you're familiar with, people that you're familiar with, They're the rulers, probably a general reference to all the Sanhedrin. The elders, the elders were likely respected laymen within the Jewish community who were a part of this council. You have the scribes, they were those who were not only known to be experts in the law, they were copyists and interpreters of the law. Interestingly, the elders and the scribes were told explicitly were part of the kangaroo court against Jesus, Matthew 26, 57. The chief priests and the elders of the people had during the morning hours, taken counsel as to how they would put him to death. Matthew 27 verse 1. Then we have Annas the high priest. He was the high priest who was deposed in 15 AD. He was the father-in-law of the man who was the current high priest, Caiaphas. It seems like when you read through the accounts, that he was almost kind of treated as like the guy who still was like pulling the strings. He's he's the one that they first bring Jesus to in John 18. But nonetheless, Caiaphas, he was the one who is the current high priest. He was the one who inadvertently prophesied that it was expedient that one man should die for the nation. You could look to that being referenced in more places than this, but John 18, 14 is one of them. John and Alexander were there. We're not too sure who they were. The first readers, doubtless, were. There are some guesses as to who they were. Um... John might have been the one to replace Caiaphas as high priest in A.D. 36. Um, he might have been a son of Annas, but there are different guesses. Alexander was said to be a man of great reputation. Part of the council, of course, in light of his reference here, I would think. So there they are. The villains of old, so to speak. It wasn't too long ago, not too long ago at all, that they presided over the trial of Christ. And now they have Peter and John. And look at verse 7. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? You have to love this. They're not disputing the miracle. That's what they're leading with. That's their first question. By what name or power have you done this? No debate as to whether or not this man was actually healed. They couldn't deny it. They're going to say that themselves in Acts chapter 4, verse 16. So like, okay, we can't go the whole, like, this is a fake healing route. So we're going to go with this. By what name or by what power have you done this? They were probably hoping that Peter and John would incriminate themselves. Doubtless, they wanted to accuse them probably like they had accused Christ of doing this in the power of Beelzebub or so on. So they asked the question, by what name or by what power have you done this? I would probably include a flashback here. I'm not sure, but I might include a flashback here to when Jesus was asked very, uh, a very similar question in the temple courts. Matthew 21, verse 23. So they asked this question. And as they do, by what name or by what power have you done this? I'll tell you what I would include right here. At this moment, I would include another flashback to Jesus' words. Right after Jesus told his disciples that they would be brought before rulers for his namesake, he continued by saying this, But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. They're opening the door to them. By what name or by what power have you done this? Flashback to Jesus. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Listen to what else Jesus said. Therefore settle settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And then right on cue with the fulfillment of Jesus' words, look at Acts chapter 4 verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus told them, it's going to turn out as an occasion for testimony for you. Don't worry about what you're going to say. I am going to give you a mouth. And how is he going to do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had even told his disciples earlier on, in their ministry, that when they were delivered up to councils, Matthew ten seventeen, they didn't have to worry about what they would say, for it would be given to them what to say, Matthew 10, verse 19. And then he said, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. So here we find in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, yet another fulfillment of Jesus' words. You can miss that. You can just read the narrative and say, okay, at that point, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, true, but it's also a fulfillment of what Jesus said, that he would give them a mouth, that the Spirit of their Father would speak through them. And I just want to tell you, if you ever get worried about what you would say, if that day were to ever come and you were to be persecuted and brought before um, some court of one kind or another, What happened in the case of the apostles and disciples is a reality that you can expect to happen to you in the sense that the Holy Spirit will empower you. You don't rely on yourself. You rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to be prepared, but you don't want to be preoccupied and worried about what you would say. Like Peter, the same one who was on the receiving end of the Spirit's power, is the same one who said, but sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts. Where some manuscripts say, Jesus as Lord. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So readiness is commanded. Being worry-filled and having a kind of worry-filled preoccupation with what you would say on such an occasion is also um, warned against. So we're told here that Peter, um, filled with the Holy Spirit, This, you could say, is a different Peter than the Peter who denied Jesus three times. He's not cowering before a servant girl or anyone else. He's ready. This is post-Pentecost. This is the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. You want to see a good illustration of the Holy Spirit makes? you got a whole bunch of them in the Old Testament, right? Just look at what Samson can do and cannot do without the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see the difference the Holy Spirit makes. But if you want a New Testament example, look at Peter When he's cowering before a servant girl versus Peter right here when he's standing before a court. Do you think he's expecting justice? After what he saw them do to Jesus, right? To whatever closeness he had. Remember him and John were in the court of the high priest and so on. He knew that they were a kind of kangaroo court. He's not expecting justice. So he knows he might be on the receiving end of very near death and persecution. But he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you again, it's the difference the Holy Spirit makes. If you are a Christian, that same spirit is inside of you. And you lean on his power, not your own understanding. You heed his word through Peter to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. But you're not having some sort of worry-filled preoccupation with what you're going to say. Because you are relying on his strength. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Watch what he says in verse 9. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he had been made well. That's great. You just kind of note what he's saying here. If the reason why we're being brought before you, if the reason why we're being examined and treated as though we are under criminal investigation is because... A lame man who was lame for 40 plus years has been made well. And you just want to know by what name this has happened. And then he's going to proceed to tell them. But I think there's a little bit here of him, in a respectful way, nonetheless calling attention to the absurdity of this. The religious leaders had no problem, you see it in the Gospels, that they get mad a lot of times if people are healed. And there's an absurdity that's to be observed there. It's as though, as Matthew Poole put it, that Peter did not dispute their authority, but he essentially questioned their integrity. You would think there would be other charges that they might lead with. No, it's how did you make this lame man well? We want to know by what name or by what power you did it. And I don't think they had good intentions. I think they were trying to set up Peter and John for a forthcoming execution. That's probably what's going on right here. I do want you to note also that the language that Peter uses when he says, by what means he has been made well. That verb that's used there for made well, we see this in the Gospels. We saw this in our study of Luke's Gospel. The same verb that's used there is the verb for saved. Could say by what means he has been saved. I think Peter's language communicates how the man's physical healing was also analogous to the healing that took place in his soul. He was healed physically He was saved spiritually by faith in Jesus Christ. Then Peter says with great boldness, look at verse 10. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel. He's not holding back. Let it be known to every one of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you want to know the name that was the name that was at work in this man's life? By what name? By what power? By the name, by what authority? You want to know what name it was? I'll tell you what name, by what power, and by what authority. It was by the name of Yeshua. Greek Yesu, right? The Hebrew Yeshua, a name that means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. It was by Jesus Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the promised anointed one. It was by Jesus Christ, the historical figure of Nazareth. The one who came from Nazareth. The Messiah who identified with the lowly. It wasn't Jesus Christ of Jerusalem. He was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Whom you crucified. He's not scared of telling them the truth. That counsel, you did it. You handed him over the Pilate, Whom you crucified. That's what you did, but this is what God did. But God, or whom God, raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is amazing. And he doesn't stop there. So he's telling them, he's preaching Christ, he's preaching the resurrection boldly. And then he says this, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, and there's a lot of them, but here's another one of them. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This, talking about Jesus, this is the stone which you builders, which was rejected by you builders, which has become The chief cornerstone. He's quoting, making reference to Psalm 118, verse 22. It was a psalm that doubtless the religious leaders knew very well. It would be sung during the Passover. Some reference it being sung during other times of the year as well, but it would be one of the Hallel psalms that was sung during the Passover. And so, doubtless, they had it likely committed to memory, I would say. And this psalm declared that the stone which the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone. Let me explain to you what's happening here. Centuries earlier, there was a prophecy that was communicated through the psalmist in Psalm 118 that the Messiah would be like a stone. Now we know through the prophet Isaiah that God's evaluation of this stone was that the stone was elect, chosen and precious. But yet the builders, those who are analogous to the vine dressers, the, the vineyard keepers, those who had a kind of um, custodial responsibility in Israel, the builders, they would look at the stone that was the Messiah that was elect and precious in the sight of God, and they would reject it. They would say, "This is not a good stone. Get rid of the stone." They would treat the stone like they treated the other prophets that God had sent to them. That's what Jesus is getting at when he tells the parable of the vine dressers in Matthew 21 and in Luke 20. And he talks about this man who owned a vineyard, had a vineyard. And then he puts these vine dressers in charge of the vineyard. And then when it came time to collect some of the fruit, vintage time, he would send his servants to go. The servants were representative of the prophets. And when the prophets would come, those vine dressers would kill them. They would beat them and stone them and kill them. And then the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my son. And then when the son comes, they say, this is the heir. Let us kill him. You see this in Matthew 21. You see it in uh, Luke chapter 20 as well. And you see when Jesus is referencing this, he makes direct application to those religious leaders. He asks the question when Jesus tells this parable, he says, When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They responded, if you look at Matthew's gospel, so at least some of them respond in this way He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus goes on and applies it right to them. Jesus did this, like the week before he was crucified. He said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He even went on to say to them, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder." Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So the religious leadership heard this before. Jesus had told them essentially that they were the builders who rejected the stone. This was another witness in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, he would be rejected. If the Jewish people were seeing the Old Testament rightly in Isaiah 53, you knew when the Messiah came, he would be despised and rejected. Not only on Isaiah 53, not only in Psalm 22, but in Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus would be the stone. The builders would look at it and say, this is not a good stone. And they would throw it out, analogous to them killing him, crucifying him. But what did God do? God raised him from the dead. And made him the chief cornerstone. That most important stone in the ancient world. That stone that was used and the the size of that stone would be used to measure, to be a measuring stick, so to speak, for the adjacent walls. It was the most important stone. So they rejected that stone and God says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, that stone is going to be the chief cornerstone in this building that I'm building called the church. And Peter's telling them right here, this is the stone which you builders Rejected and has become the chief cornerstone, exalted to the highest position of prominence. And then we'll conclude today, it's not the end of the passage, but we'll conclude today with verse 12, where Peter says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now he called attention to Psalm 118, verse 22. In the verse right before that, in Psalm 118 verse 21, the psalmist said, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. I think you have an indirect witness to the deity of Christ right here. Because if you knew Psalm 118, you knew that Yahweh was the psalmist's salvation. And now Peter is telling them there is salvation found nowhere else, not in any other. He's the only one through whom you could be saved. There's no other religious system. There's no other religious leader. There is no other name under heaven. What does that mean? Anywhere on this earth, anywhere on this planet, you try to find another name by which you can be saved, there isn't one. There is only one. Jesus. You call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. There's only one way. Not Moses, not Abraham. Insert any other Um, name that you could imagine. There's no other name. It's only Jesus. What grace given among men that God would actually give a name that people could call upon and be saved. You know, kids in the children's bulletin, you'll see that you have an opportunity on the back of the bulletin to color in um, a picture of the ark. Um, Not the ark of the covenant, but Noah's ark. And there's a question there that reads something like this. What's the connection between Noah's Ark and Acts chapter 4 verse 12? God was so gracious in the days leading up to the flood that he actually provided a way of escape. But there was only one way of escape. As I've told you before, people get annoyed that there is only one way of escape when people should be rejoicing that God made any way of escape. And even as then, as as during that time there was only one way of escape from the judgment of the flood, it was the ark. I think that points to the salvation that we are considering right here in Acts chapter four, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His name alone. Let me encourage you to run into the ark that is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You do it by doing what Peter called the people to do. You repent. You turn from your sin and you turn to Christ Jesus. You look to Him as the only way. You believe the word of the Lord. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the stone which was rejected by the builders and He has become the chief cornerstone. He is the only name under heaven. You believe that, you confess it with your mouth. And with the heart, you believe unto salvation. And then you make the confession with your mouth. And then you go public with that confession in baptism. You are saved by faith alone. But the first demonstration that there is faith in your heart is when you come forward and you say, I believe in Jesus as Lord. And then by God's grace, you say, I want to be baptized. That's what Peter called the people to do over and over again in the book of Acts. Um, And that's what you are called to do when you believe the gospel. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Father, thank you for this amazing text. Thank you for the difference that the Holy Spirit makes, the boldness that he brings. We know that in and of ourselves, we would be so cowardly. We would wilt under any kind of affliction or pressure or intimidation or persecution. But we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit who has opened up our eyes so that we might esteem the stone that was rejected by the builders that we would come in agreement with your assessment that he is the Son of God and that he is precious. Father, I pray that in light of your word today that your people would leave treasuring the opportunity that they have in the here and now to bear witness of Christ. Help us to bear witness of Christ with boldness and meekness and gentleness with our words. Help us to live in light of the gospel with our actions and help us, Heavenly Father, to be enraptured with the narrative of inspired scripture, and then with the history that you are continuing to write, as it were, through your people, the church, and in this world. Thank you that you've called us out of darkness to be light, who could see Jesus as the light of the world and the only way in which men and women can be saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.